pretty much sets it up our need of God. This pretty much sets up how it's all Him, only Him. In uh, chapter 2 of Ephesians, 1 through, hang on, 1 through 3. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. I could go on and on on that one. I won't. If you would all join in with the prayer of confession with me, please. Almighty Father, you are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. You are worthy of all our thanks and praise. And yet, because of Adam's sin and ours, we follow after our own worldly passions and desires. We have broken your law, and become unclean and are in great need of your cleansing power. Forgive us, Lord, for the sake of Christ, and by the work of your wondrous cross, cleanse and purify us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to walk in all your ways. Amen. Please turn to hymn number 150. We will sing, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross.
to love you back. You've given us even that grace to love. Thank you for that, Lord. Lord, we lift up our local body here, Father, asking that you would have your way with us. That as we get into your word and as we learn more about you, become more intimate with you, Lord, you would pour yourself out in us through everyday life. The lives that we touch, may you touch through us in Jesus' name. Father, for the church in Glasgow, Scotland, Grace Baptist Church, Govan, we ask, Lord, for them as well, Father, the uh, this, this startup church that is uh, just getting established as well, Lord. We pray, Father, that your hand would be on them as well. We thank you, Lord, for the lives that you have placed within this body. We pray now for the Dunbars who are not feeling well. Uh, we pray for the Moody's, uh, Adrian and the girls, Lord. We pray for everyone here who's been affected one way or another by just a regular colds, or sinuses, or flus, Lord. Have your way with us, Lord. That's, that's the best thing that we can do. It's just we yield ourselves to your spirit as you have your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so in the Baptist Catechism, what is the effectual calling? That may be new terminology for some folks. And I understand that. I was there one time. Effectual calling. Well, that's what's so cool about the catechisms and confessions, where they, they take these common questions and they, and they put them in a very succinct way, most times, a very succinct way, and answer this, what is effectual calling? Effectual calling, if everybody would read with me, effectual, effectual calling, calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ, freely offered to us in the Gospel. Amen. You guys can be seated. Good morning again. If you want to turn your Bibles with me to John chapter 3, we'll be continuing our study through John's Gospel. It's nice to have you all closer. I feel like you know, the back rows have been uh, exited, so it's nice. Um, we'll be in John chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 1 through and we come to these verses this morning, and we can't forget what we've seen already in John's gospel. We can't forget why John wrote his gospel. He tells us in John chapter 20, he says, he wrote these things so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life in his name. And we saw in the prologue that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came as this He's the Word. He's the Word of God, the Son of God, and He came and He took on flesh. In time and space, He took on a human nature. I've been trying to explain it to my four-year-old this week, and it's very difficult <laughs> to explain the incarnation to a four-year-old, but um, 
It's, you know, this happened. The second person of the triune God took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we see in John's gospel that he is light and he is life. And yet, not everyone comes to the light. Not everyone runs to the light. Not everyone embraces the life. Some people reject the life. Some people reject the light. We see in John chapter 3, this is because they love the darkness. And so, we see in the prologue that Jesus, this Word of God incarnate, comes to the world that He made, and the world rejects Him. He comes to His own people, and they reject Him. But to all who did receive Him, that believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And as we've gone through John's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is not just a mere man. He's not just a man in right relationship with God, that He is God incarnate, that He is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the one that's going to bring about an exodus for God's people, saving them not from slavery to Egypt or Rome, but slavery from sin and death, that He's the special anointed servant of the Lord. And we've gone through these couple signs that have been in John's Gospel. We've seen the turning of water into wine. We've seen the cleansing of the temple. And we talked early on about how John's Gospel uses this word signs differently. That these signs that Jesus does are not meant to make us focus on the things that he does, right? Turning the water into wine, cleansing the temple, healing in person. But it's meant to cause our eyes to run upward to see Jesus and His glory. Not the thing that He does, not His power, namely, but who He is and what He came to do. And if you were with us last week, and you could even look in the last couple verses of chapter 2, we saw why this is important. Why the signs are meant to lead us to Jesus, His saving work, and what He came to do, and not focus on the things themselves. Because as we looked at last week, There's a difference between true saving faith in the person of Christ and false faith that is merely focused on the power of Christ or what he can give or these earthly blessings that he brings, and it's not focused on the person. And so this week, it's really a continuation of what we talked about last week. We're going to look at Nicodemus, this very famous passage of scripture. Many of us are probably very familiar with this, this language of being born again. Jesus tells Nicodemus that he must be born again. And we'll see that Jesus talks to Nicodemus in such a way to confront some of the presuppositions that Nicodemus had. He comes to him, Nicodemus comes to Jesus as a religious leader, as a ruler of the Jews, as one that has pride in who he is, where he came from, and who he is. But Jesus, as we saw last week, He doesn't need anybody to bear witness about what is in man. He sees the human heart, he sees the human desires, and he cuts right through all that, and he gets to the heart of the matter. And ultimately, we'll see that Jesus' words, while they are piercing, while they are getting to the heart of the matter, they are a great grace, not only to Nicodemus, but to us. So, if you want to follow along with me, I'll read verses 1 through 8. I'll pray for us, and then we'll study God's Word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, 
For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. But Jesus answered him, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit that blows where it wishes, that mighty wind. And we pray that your spirit would blow this morning, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we would see the truths of your word, our need to be born again our great need for Christ to come and renovate our hearts, to change us, to not leave us as we are, but to transform us, to make us new. And as we read this morning, we become aware that we cannot do this on our own, that no words that I can say can convince anyone, that no eloquent speech, no worldly philosophy, no miraculous sign can convince anyone It takes a sovereign work of God. And so this morning we ask that you would help us to see the truths of your word, to embrace them by faith, and that we would be changed this morning, that we would walk in your ways, and that we would trust in Christ. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. This is, like I said, a famous passage. I mean, how often have you maybe heard this, maybe at a tent revival or... I'm not sure if any of you have ever been to one of those, but, you know, it's a very common passage. It's even a very common passage for evangelism. Is this kind of microphone cutting out? Is this sort of distracting? Okay, you guys are close enough. We'll, we'll cut it out. Okay, so you've, you've probably heard this passage before, right? You must be born again. Maybe you were at a revival. Maybe you were, saw an evangelist speak on this topic before. What does it mean to be born again, right? We talk about this sometimes, being born again, the new birth being born from above, regeneration, these are all words referring to the same thing. And this morning we're going to break this passage up into three different parts, and we're going to see three different things. First, we're going to see in verses 1 through 3 that this new birth, whatever it is, it's necessary. It's necessary. It's not an optional thing. It's necessary. In verses 4 through 7, we'll see that the new birth is not new. It's not a new concept It's actually an old one. And we'll see finally in verse 8 that the new birth is a sovereign work of God. A sovereign work of God. So, firstly, we'll see that the new birth is necessary. The necessity of the new birth. And we begin in verse 1 where it says that this man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And we hear a little bit about who this Nicodemus man is. That he's a Pharisee. That he's a ruler of the Jews, that for the Jewish people, not only was it 
a big deal to be Jewish, to be from Abraham, right? But we see Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's a religious leader of that day. And the Pharisees were at the top level of the religious leaders. They had much of the Old Testament memorized. They knew all the scriptures. They followed the law of Moses to a T. And they were the religious elite of the day. And so Nicodemus comes to Jesus with these sort of backgrounds, right? He's a Jew and he's a religious leader. But there's a little connection that I want to point out here. And it makes even more sense if we sort of forget that there's chapter and verse divisions, right? That these chapter and verse divisions are not part of Scripture. They were added later just to help us know where where we're talking about, right? If you want to tell someone to go to John 3, they don't have to flip through the whole book. But we saw last week that Jesus knows what is in man, and he doesn't need anyone to bear witness to him about what is in man. That these people were believing in Jesus, they were trusting in his signs, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in them And twice, and verse 25, it says he knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. That Jesus is saying, and John is saying, that this Nicodemus is really one of these people. And we'll see that as we see what Nicodemus says. That he goes on in great detail about these things that Jesus does. And he really says some great truths about who Jesus is. We see him call him rabbi, which means teacher. We see him confess that Jesus has come from God, that he is doing miraculous signs, that he probably heard about him turning water into wine or cleansing the temple or these other things that Jesus was doing. So he's admitting that Jesus did these great signs, and he even says that he cannot do them unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is admitting great things about who Jesus is, that he's done great signs, that he's a teacher, that he's come from God. And this sounds to us like a great start, right? It sounds like a great start to a new believer. It sounds like a great start to someone that, you know, needs to get baptized or join the church or whatever, right? We hear these words and we think, wow, Nicodemus has a lot figured out more than the average person. And that should make what Jesus says to him, all the more puzzling, all the more interesting. Because Nicodemus, as we said, is saying true historical things about Jesus and his ministry, that he's come from God, that he's done great things, that he's a great teacher. But we see that something is still missing. Something is still missing. Something's not right. And as we said at the beginning, Jesus sees right through this. He knows all things. He knows all people. He knows what's in Nicodemus' heart. And he cuts right to the heart of the issue. And in verse 3, he says these words. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That Jesus doesn't need anyone to bear witness to him about what's in Nicodemus. He knows Nicodemus' heart. And even though Nicodemus is admitting these true things about who Jesus is, that this being born again is necessary for Nicodemus to understand and to happen to him. It's not about what he has right. It's about what needs to be done to Nicodemus. 
that whatever this new birth is, it's necessary. It's not an optional thing. It's not um, something that Nicodemus can just choose whether he wants to be born again or not. That it's an imperative thing that in order for Nicodemus to see the kingdom of God, he needs to be born again. And we see in verse 4 that Nicodemus is confused by this. That he doesn't follow what Jesus is saying. Born again? And we see that in verse 4. He says, can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? And we see that Nicodemus is really confused, right? (laughs) I mean, be born again? like, And we see that he's an old man, that he's not um, young, that he's admitting that he's older. And he's saying, can I be born again? Is this possible? What does it mean? And he's thinking purely spiritually. I mean, sorry, he's thinking physically and he's not thinking spiritually. And we see this pattern throughout John's gospel that Jesus will say something. He'll articulate a great spiritual truth to people and they'll become confused and they'll focus on the physical picture rather than the spiritual truth that Jesus is trying to communicate. So we see it right here with Nicodemus. Jesus says, you must be born again. Spiritual truth. Nicodemus says, I have to go into my mother's womb a second time. So he's confused. We see it again in John 4 with the woman at the well. Almost a contrasting account. But Jesus says, everyone who drinks water from this well will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I give will never thirst again. He's talking about a spiritual truth here. And she gets confused. She says, I want this water. I don't want to have to come back to this well. I want an everlasting you know, water supply. She's confused. So spiritual truth, they focus on the physical. Happens again in John chapter 6. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and will live forever. And the people say, how is this man going to give us his flesh to eat? That they are confused, right? There's this continual pattern of being spiritual truth articulated, but them focusing on the physical picture and missing what Jesus says. And so Nicodemus is confused here in verse 4. And it's interesting. Jesus doesn't really clarify for him. He doesn't explain to him. He says, no, no, no. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, no, let me explain it to you. Let me break it down. What does he do? He actually presses in more. He almost doubled down on what he says. In verse 5, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That these are almost parallel statements. If you look at the, if you see verse 3 and verse 5, they're almost saying the same thing in different ways. Born again, born of water and the Spirit. Seeing the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God. That Jesus here is essentially saying the same thing in a different way. Whatever it means to be born again, it means to be born by water and the Spirit. Whatever it means to see the kingdom of God, it's the same thing as entering the kingdom of God, the equivalent. But we're still left with this question. Maybe you're thinking this question. What is Jesus talking about? (laughs) What does it mean to be born again? What does it mean especially to be born of water and the Spirit? 
that there's much discussion about these verses. Maybe you are familiar with some of this discussion. Some will say that this being born of the water is referring to baptism. That Jesus is saying you need to be baptized before you can be saved. Well, even though baptism is an important thing, it's an important act, um, it's not necessary for salvation. We believe in salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and so I don't believe it's talking about baptism. Some would say that it's referring to natural birth, right? That a woman's water breaks, and if you're born through a woman naturally, um, but um, then born by the Spirit, that's what he's talking about. I think it's kind of confusing. I don't necessarily think that's could it could be what it's talking about. That's not necessarily what I think. So what is it talking about? What does it mean to be born of water and the spirit? And I think we find an answer to this in the Old Testament. If you want to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 36, one of the latter prophets. Ezekiel chapter 36. We see these words in verses 25 through 27. That the Old Testament speaks about God creating his people anew through water and the Spirit. And we see that in Ezekiel 36, verse 25. It says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in all my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So we see this language in the Old Testament, hundreds of years before this account, of this language of being made new by the water and the Spirit. That this new birth is not a new concept. That it's actually found in the Old Testament. That this act of new creation, of God cleansing His people, renewing them by the Spirit, is found in the Old Testament. Him taking out the heart of stone putting in its place a heart of flesh, giving a new heart, a new spirit, and cleansing from all his people's uncleanness. And what's amazing is that Nicodemus should have known this. Nicodemus should have known this, that as a teacher of the law, as a ruler, as a Pharisee, he probably would have had this passage memorized, and yet he did not understand what it was talking about. If you Turn to John chapter 3, verse 10. We'll, we'll get to this next week. But Jesus says this. Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? What is he saying? That you should have known about this, Nicodemus. That this new birth, this being born of water and the Spirit, it was promised in the Old Testament. And whatever it is, it's not a new thing. It's an old concept that you should have known about. He says in verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't marvel. Why? Is he saying don't be amazed at the new birth? No, he's saying don't be surprised. Don't marvel that I'm telling you this. You should have known this. That it's not a new concept. That it's found, promised in the Old Testament. This promise of the new covenant of new creation 
for God's people. And we get sort of a picture of this in verse 6 where he says, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. One commentator said, like begets like, right? That from the flesh comes the flesh, but from the Spirit comes the Spirit. Jesus will say in John chapter 6 that the Spirit gives life, that the flesh is no help at all, that some of these things are spiritually discerned, that what Nicodemus is missing is not the knowledge, he knows it, it's this new birth. And so we've seen that not only is the new birth necessary, not only is this new birth not a new concept, but an old one, but finally we'll see that the new birth is a sovereign work of God. That the new birth is a sovereign work of God. And Jesus shows this in verse 8. He illustrates this from nature. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That just like the wind in nature, you can't see where it's going. You can't predict it. You can't manipulate it, right? One time I was driving um, on Lost Bridge Road over Lake Decatur, and all of a sudden this wind came out of nowhere. The sky got dark. This wind came and was blowing my car around, and I, I had no idea. It came out of nowhere. And that's what Jesus is saying. The wind is like that. We can't predict where it's going. We can't manipulate it. That it has a mind of its own, in a sense. And the same thing is true of the Spirit in this new birth. That we can't predict where the Spirit will work. We can't manipulate the Spirit to do what we want. If we say these certain phrases or do these certain things, that the Spirit has to do something. That the Spirit goes where it wishes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's what this new birth is. And if we remember in the prologue to John's Gospel, it is not those who are born of blood, nor of the will of man, nor the will of the flesh, that have rights to become the children of God, but it is those that are born of God. Born of God. That's what we read in the prologue, that no blood relation, no being Jewish or being born in the right family, no human exertion can cause this new birth to happen. That Nicodemus, as a ruler of the Jews, as a Pharisee, as one who obeyed the Mosaic law, he would have had every inclination in him to think that something in himself merited this new birth, merited salvation, merited eternal life, that he was born in the right family of Abraham, a Jew of Jews, right? He had this human exertion. He had spent his whole life obeying the law, memorizing the scriptures. And yet Jesus tells him that he can't even see the kingdom of God unless he's born again, that he's missed something, and that ultimately this new birth is a sovereign work of God. And so as we try to apply this passage to our lives, as we try to understand it, we can see pretty quickly that it cuts the legs out from human pride. From any human pride that we would try to lift up. That Nicodemus, as I said, as a ruler of the Jews, as a religious elite, he knew historical facts about Jesus. He knew all these great things about who Jesus was as 
who he, did, who he was and what he came to do. And he had this pride that was in him. And you see that in his language that he was like, what do I need to do? Do I need to go back into my mother's womb? Do I need to be born physically again? He wants to work for this salvation. He wants to work for this new birth. And Jesus says that it's not going to come by working. But how often do we do this? It's easy to point fingers at Nicodemus. You know, these Pharisees, we do this, right? When we, when we read through the Gospels, we look at the Pharisees and we say, those idiots, you know? How could they miss? The Messiah was right there. Jesus is right there. He's telling him to be born again. Nicodemus is, we're the same way. We're the exact same way. We miss the truths of Scripture, that we have pride. We have our own human effort that we want to give. We want to say, look how much I did. This was me for much of my early life, that I was born in the church, I went to church every Sunday, I knew all the Bible stories, I had them all memorized, I obeyed my parents, but underneath all that was pride. I wasn't doing it to glorify God, I was doing it to be proud, because it made me feel good about myself, and I felt better than other people because I knew the right answer, or I did the right thing. And it created this secret pride that no one could see, that to everybody else, I was, I was normal. I was a good kid. But it created this darkness in me. And it's the same way Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He calls them whitewashed tombs. That on the outside, they're clean. They're white. They look great. But inside, they're full of dead men's bones, is what he says. And that's so often how we can think. That sometimes we think like this. That if I clean up the outside... If I know the right things, if I know the Bible answers, if I do the right things, then I'll be okay. And it creates this pride, this works-based religion in us. That if we do enough good things, that God has to bless us, that he has to be with us, and that we earn his favor in this way. But as we see, Jesus' words tell us it's not about what we know, it's not about what we do, it's rather about what needs to be done to us. That while Jesus' words here might leave us feeling helpless in a sense, right? What do you mean? What do you mean I can't work my way up to God? What do you mean I can't control this? That actually Christ's words here are a grace to us. And they're a grace to Nicodemus. Why? Why? Because they expose our true condition. That it would have been ungracious of Jesus to just leave Nicodemus where he was and just say, that sounds like a good idea. I'm sure you'll figure out the rest. No, he's cutting to the heart of the issue. And that we see our true condition. And we saw it this morning in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that if we were to look at Nicodemus's heart or ours... There would be a giant idol in the middle of our hearts. And at the bottom of that idol, written at the bottom, would be the name human pride. Human pride. That we are so quick to think of ourselves and to think, you know, we think of the atheist often that says, I don't need God. There is no God. I don't need God. But there's also a Christian pride, right? Or there's a seemingly Christian pride that says, look at what I've done. Look at what I can bring. Look how great I am. Look at all the things that I've done. And this passage levels all of that. <laughs> that Jesus cuts all this down 
And it's not about what we do. It's not about how we can be improved. But it's about what must be done to us. That Charles Spurgeon said, Jesus came not to whiten tombs, but to open them. That the scriptures don't say, you must be improved, but you must be born again. And as J. Gretchen Machen said, the Christian life begins not with an act of man, but an act of God. That God, by His Spirit, as we read this morning, shows us our sin, convicts us of our need for a Savior. The Spirit does that. The Spirit penetrates our hearts, shows us our sin, shows us that idol that we've made of human pride. Luckily, the Spirit shows us only a part of that. (laughs) Because if we were to see how messed up we were at once, we would be knocked out. (laughs) But He graciously shows us our need for Christ. The Spirit does this work, opens our eyes not only to our sin, but to the grace of Christ. The grace of Christ. That as we go through John's Gospel, it's pretty amazing to see the, the trajectory of Nicodemus. Here, he is spiritually blind. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And as we get through John's Gospel, he's actually going to be one of the people that risk his life to bury Christ. Amazing to think about. That the Spirit does this work. The Spirit shows us our sin, shows us the grace of God in the Gospel, gives us new hearts that want to obey His commands, as we read in Ezekiel 36, and that all of this is God's doing. What did it say in Ezekiel 36? I will cleanse you. I will purify you. I will give you a new heart. It didn't say, if you do this, then I will do this. Right? It didn't say that. It didn't say, if you do enough good things, then I'll cleanse you. If you clean up your life enough, if you do enough good things, if you kind of put your mess in a pile and try to clean it up or sweep it under the rug, then I'll cleanse you. No. And he doesn't say... I really want to cleanse you, but I first need you to do these things. No. He says, I will. I will cleanse you. I will purify you. I will give you a new heart. Six times in those three verses, we see this repetition of, I will. I will. And this leads me into the second point of application, this idea of the kingdom of God. Jesus references this twice in verse 3 and in verse 5. He says, That you cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. There's a lot of confusion about this idea of the kingdom of God. What is it? What is the kingdom of God? And many people will ask, how do we build the kingdom? Right? How do we build the kingdom? How do we grow the kingdom? How do we build the kingdom? And I think that that question already misunderstands what Jesus is saying here. That it's not us that build the kingdom, that it's God that builds his kingdom. That it's God that builds his kingdom. That the kingdom is not something we build. It's not about having as many kids as we can can and building the kingdom that way or making beautiful buildings that build the kingdom physically on earth or what else can we think of? Winning the culture war, doing these great signs, great artwork, building great buildings, as I said. All these things are not the kingdom of God. They are physical, they are earthly, they will pass away. But Jesus says that you can't even see the kingdom unless you're being born again. That this new creation, this act of God, is something that God has to do. And that it's spiritual. And that the kingdom 
is built by God in this act of new creation that's begun in the believer's heart. That's what we read in Ezekiel, that the new creation has begun in the human heart. He's given us a heart of flesh. Sam Rinehan says this, The kingdom of Christ is not of this world. It is a kingdom from above. A kingdom entered not by natural birth, but supernatural birth. A kingdom belonging to those not born of the flesh, but born of the spirit. Not those born of Abraham's family, but of Abraham's faith. And this is what has begun in our hearts. That when we're born again by the spirit, God gives us a new heart that wants to follow him. We didn't want to follow him before. We were children of wrath. And now we've been welcomed into God's family as children of his beloved son. That this new covenant in Christ makes us members of the kingdom of God. That what the first Adam was supposed to do, the second Adam, Christ, has done. What was Adam supposed to do in the garden? He was supposed to build a kingdom. He was supposed to fill the earth with image-bearing sons of God. But he failed to do that. He gave into temptation. He sinned. And what Adam failed to do, Jesus has done. He came. He took on flesh. He fulfilled the law perfectly. And then he suffered the curse that we deserved. He rose again on the third day. And now he, by his spirit, is doing what? Filling the earth with image-bearing sons of God. By the proclamation of the gospel, souls are being saved, people are being born again, the Spirit is resurrecting dead souls for His glory. So wherever the gospel is preached, wherever Christ is proclaimed, the power of God is at work. The kingdom is being built. We saw this in the book of Acts. And so it can be so easy, right? We're so pragmatic sometimes. We want to we wanna find out how can we grow the kingdom? How can we, how can we do it? How do we do it? And we come up with these worldly answers, right? If we have signs, if we have beautiful things that people can see, that will grow the kingdom. Or if we have wisdom, right? If we use earthly wisdom and earthly things to get people to come and believe in Jesus, then the kingdom would grow. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians? He says, Jews seek signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but what? We preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. That the power of God is not found in these earthly things, but in the proclamation of Christ crucified. That when sinners are saved... Brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, that is where the kingdom is present, in part. And as we read this morning in Ephesians, if you want to look at um, your bulletin this morning, I don't have it in front of me, but Paul uses this strange language. He says, you've been seated with Christ in the heavenly places. What? I'm seated right here. I'm here in Decatur, Illinois. What does that mean, I'm seated in the heavenly places with Christ? He's saying... In part, you've partaken of this final end. That in part, you are seated with Christ in heaven by faith. That your salvation is secure. That it can't be lost. That you are with God in heaven, worshiping 
right now. And even though this is in part, we await a consummation, right? The book of Revelation talks about the consummation when all things will be made new and everything will be consummated. And the kingdom of God will fill the earth. There'll be no mourning, no crying. There's a great song that says, we will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will sing forever. We will feast and weep no more. That that's our hope, that this earthly kingdom will perish. But God's heavenly kingdom that's begun in our hearts will be consummated one day. There'll be no weeping, no crying. And that is where our hope lies in today. So this morning, may we see the new birth and the necessity of it. That whether we've been born again or whether we haven't, we would see that it's necessary. That God has done an amazing thing in the hearts of his people. And that we should worship him and rejoice and pray that he would work in people around us to make them alive again. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, we thank you for the new birth that humbles us. If we're honest, Lord, it humbles us. That it shows us that we can know historical truths about Jesus. We can see miraculous things and yet miss the point entirely. That we can look for political change on the earth. We can look for cultural winning. We can look for all these things and yet miss why you came. You came to save sinners and you came to, by your spirit, create your people anew. To cleanse us, to purify us. And this morning, Lord, we pray that you would do that in our hearts, that for those of us that have not been born again, that we would we would meditate on the gospel, that we would see Christ crucified this morning, and that the power of your spirit would work in our hearts, from the youngest to the oldest. And and if we have been born again, if we have trusted in Christ, if we have put our faith in him alone, this morning would you strengthen our faith? Would you assure us that our salvation is not something that we can do? It's not something that we can work for. It's not something that we can even maintain by our own effort or ability. But it's something that you work in us for your good pleasure. This morning would we trust in Christ alone? Would we rest in him and as Ezekiel says, would we walk in all of your ways? May we flee from our sin. May we run from it. And may we run to Christ, who freely pardons, who freely forgives, not by our works, but by his. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. We come to a time of our service where we partake of the Lord's Supper, where we're reminded that... We will feast in the house of Zion. <laughs> that we will come to the end of all things. That what we're doing now is only a picture. It's meant to point our eyes upward and forward to that great day when, as the song says, the clouds will be rolled back as a scroll. And those that have not trusted in Christ will say, may the rocks fall upon us. Right? That they've seen the wickedness of their deeds. And this morning, may we do a similar thing. May we see how much we need a good Savior. How much we need Christ to come and show us our sin. 
but show us the greatness of our Savior. That this meal, this Lord's Supper, is meant to confirm our faith. It's meant to nourish our souls that spiritually we feed on Christ by the bread and the wine. And so if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't partake, that you, that you contemplate who Christ is and what he came to do. And maybe you have small children that can't understand the gospel, that don't understand why we're doing this. Now's a great time to explain to them what this means, what we're doing, that it's for those that have put their faith in Christ, that have been baptized, that have trusted in him, that it's not a magical thing, and yet at the same time it's not just a ritualistic thing, that it's meant to lead our eyes to Christ, to his finished work, and we can explain this body, this, this bread represents Christ's body, this blood, this, this wine represents Christ's blood, and that we can preach the gospel to our kids even now. So this morning, would we come confessing our sin, looking to Christ, but rejoicing that he has come and that he will come again? Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this supper, this uh, means of grace that you've given us, that we can come, yes, examining ourselves, seeing the ways this past week that we have fallen short, that we've broken your law, that we've followed after other gods, that we've not honored those in authority around us, that we've lied, cheated, stolen, coveted, all these ways that we've broken your law. And yet, you've given us this means by which we can remember that Christ's body was broken, that he paid the penalty for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. And we remember that now, and we look forward to that heavenly day when we will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb, and all will be made new. Would you take these common elements and use them for your purposes, and would your saints be matured and assured this morning by faith? In your name we pray. Amen.
the good Savior we have. So we take the bread each week, reminded of Christ's body broken, so that our sin might be forgiven. So as we take the bread, remember and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of your sins. Representing Christ's blood that was spilled on the cross, that we might be cleansed, that we might be purified, that we might walk in newness of life. And so we take the cup and we drink and we remember and we believe that Christ's blood was spilled for the forgiveness of all of our sins. And now we'll respond to God's great grace by singing the hymn, Solid Rock.
God through the giving of our tithes and offerings where we give a portion of what God has given us back to Him. And as we read in Corinthians, that it should be done with joy, right? That if we're giving out of obligation or we feel like we have to or we feel like we need to earn something from God, that we shouldn't do it. <laughs> that it should be out of joy and gratitude for what God has given us. And so we remember that now if you've given online through the website or you're giving now in person. We remember that this is an act of worship and that it glorifies God in this way. So would you pray for our tithes and offerings with me. Lord, we thank you for your great provision for our lives, for your providence in governing us and preserving us in all the ways that you care for us, Lord. We are eternally grateful that every day we can be reminded of something new that you've done in our lives that, um, that we didn't deserve, but yet you gave it to us. And, and now this morning, we, we come to you with these humble offerings, Lord. They're not much. You're the ruler of the universe. You own all things. What are these that we would give to you? They're nothing before you. And yet at the same time, um, as it says in the Gospels, the one that gave two pennies gave more than the one that gave everything. That it's not the amount of the gift, but it's the heart of the one that gives. And so this morning, we pray that we would give with joy, with gratitude, that these things might be used for the advance of your kingdom, your church, that through the proclamation of the gospel, through missions, that people might be saved from their sins and that your great name would be spread throughout the earth. We pray all these things in your son's name. the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings Hey girls, we're gonna clean up our toys and find them all fun. 